Thank you so much for that remarkable reading. Those three parables uh, found right there in Matthew's Gospel, um, as we'll see, really carry uh, very important thematic parallels with each other. And we're going to be looking at some of those themes. Uh, the first theme is the delayed response to the kingdom theme. Very, very important theme in Matthew's Gospel. Um, those who are coming later. There's a theme of the replacement theme, who actually is in the kingdom. And then finally, there is the, the costly grace theme which comes through. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how that comes together in these three parables. Thank those who did a great job sharing those with us. The first uh, parable of the, the two sons that Mara read for us is a special parable because it's one of nine parables in Matthew's Gospel that is found only in Matthew's Gospel. And it is not known as much as the uh, like parable of the two sons in Luke's Gospel, a very different parable, but with similar thematic links. But in this parable, the, the father comes to the son, and he says to the son, go and work in my vineyard. And the, and the son says, um, I, I will not. But later, he regrets it, and he eventually goes. And the second son, he says, uh, go work my vineyard. He says, yes, sir, I will. But then he doesn't actually do it. And Jesus asked the question, uh, which one did the will of the Father? Now, when, when a Western uh, reader reads this parable, we're, we're all well aware that parables involve usually some very, very tight tension, right? And it's a tension between various values. And so Christ uses the tension in parables, one of his amazing teaching techniques to create this kind of angst which reveals something about uh, the kingdom. So in this particular case, uh, we're like scratching our heads, like this is like the closest thing to a no-brainer parable. Of course it's the one who did the will of the Father. But that's not at all how it would have sounded if you had heard it in the first century in the context of both actually the Hebrew and the Greek culture of the first century. Because uh, if you were a son in the ancient world, you really owed two things to your father. You owed him your obedience, but you also owed him your honor. You would never shame your father. So these, these two tensions are, in fact, being played against each other and are very powerful. So the first son, who said to the father, uh, no, I will not work in your vineyard, even though he actually went and did it, he had publicly shamed his father to his father's face. And therefore, that was a horrible thing to do. The other son, uh, even though he didn't actually do anything, at least he honored his father publicly and said, yes, I will do it. Yes, sir, I will do it. And so it really is, it does actually have the tension that we normally associate with parables, and it is identifying the dynamic between whether you should honor your father or not, or obey your father or not. Those tensions are, in fact, present in this parable. Now, when you think about a parable like this, uh, and, and again, this is found only in Matthew's Gospel, it does, it does have a lot of parables thematically with the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And I do think it's interesting, I've never had taken on to do this, but uh, I'm sure Dr. Bauer, he's here, he's probably done this many times, but I've actually wanted that someone take a, a moment to look at all the parables that actually carry the theme of the dynamic between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the 
prostitutes and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the kind of the people that are responding, the sinners, to the gospel. Because it's a theme that comes through so many parables of Jesus. So you recall that in the, the parable of the prodigal son, you also have the same dynamic of these two, the two sons, one of which uh, says to his father, I want my share of the inheritance. It, you again hear this as a form of public shaming. If you say to your father in the ancient world, I want my inheritance, I want it now, you are saying effectively, I wish you were dead. It's a public shaming. Now he adds to that, by going off to a distant country, also disobeying the Father by this riotous living. But it's also going to bring out this, you know, this delayed response theme. The first son in this parable, you know, said no, but later went. It's a delayed response. It's a very key theme in these parables, the delayed response. Those who at first said no, but later repent and just receive the gospel. And those who give lip service, but are actually not in the kingdom at all. So when the son comes back and has this delayed response, we find out slowly as the parable unfolds that in fact the older son is actually the lost son. Even though he had never strayed from the father in the kind of outward sense, in fact his heart was far from him. He actually says to the father, all these years I have slaved for you. And I I love how the younger brother, when he comes back, he had devised in his head this like classic three-point sermon. I mean, not like, you know, the homiletical three-point sermon, but kind of like the classic three-point sermon of what you work out in your head, you're going to say to God. And in this case, he says it to his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And what I love about the parable and this, the same theme comes through these Matthew texts, is when he comes back, he, and the father sees him. Now remember how the father comes out to him, and the father runs to the son. Again, this, this is that honor theme, because Ben Serach said famously, you will know how a, a man carries his dignity by the way he walks. So in the ancient world, a father doesn't go around running. Okay, this running, you have a long robe on, you can't run, not tripping of yourself, so you have to pick up your robe to run. It's a form of shaming. You, you, it's a form of humiliation to do that. So the father runs to the son, they embrace, and the son starts dribbling out his sermon. Father, I sin against heaven against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Those are two really good points, gospel points. But notice that he never gets to the third point, make me as a hired slave for God or for you. That's what all the religions of the world do. And Christianity interrupts that, and he actually reinstalls him as a full son. Doesn't make him a hired servant. Put the best robe on him, shoes on his feet, give him the, you know, kill a fatted calf, all of that. So this theme of this son who comes late but actually does the will of the father that's why jesus says i tell you the truth the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get in heaven before you do because in fact even though they come they're delayed they in fact are coming uh, to the father in obedience. delayed obedience obedience is the point so this is this theme where this whole year we're looking at the theme of servanthood and today we're looking at some ticker features about about obedience now, if you look at this parable, 
And these two, uh, I love the fact that we're still at the first one, where when the second son, or so the first son says, I will not. But says, but afterward, he changed his mind. Okay, this is, again, very similar to the language used of the prodigal son who got into the pig pen and says he came to his senses. And the word here, the word that's used there is this word metamelothes, which is from metamelomai, which means a transformation in the way you think and act that translates into actual action. It's a great word for us. So he actually changes his mind to the point of actually going and working in the vineyard. It's a delayed response, like the Pharisee, like the tax collectors and the sinners, but they're coming into the realm of obedience, and that's what Jesus commends in this passage. The others, on the other hand, are in fact uh, doing lip service. They're telling the Father, yes, sir, but actually not obeying. Now, so many of Jesus' parables are parables that make a living into a story, actual texts from the Old Testament. I don't know for sure, but I would suggest two of them are being made uh, evident in this passage. First is Isaiah 29, 13, where Isaiah says about the people of God, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isn't that essentially the theme of this parable? Or Ezekiel 33, 31, they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. This is the theme of this parable. In fact, he actually says in this parable, he says that he, the prostitutes will get there to the kingdom of God for you. This is Matthew's gospel using the phrase kingdom of God. This is unusual. This is a way of really emphasizing you're offending God himself in this. So the second parable of the vineyard farmers, uh, which is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a very, very similar theme. And this parable really brings out the prior action of God in radical grace. The verbs are stacked up of what God has done for his people. He planted the vineyard. He built the wall. He dug around it. He fertilized it. He's entrusted to his servants. He then sends servants to, to collect the fruit. And of course, as you heard, they keep killing, eventually killing all the servants. Now here you come to another surprise because after killing all the servants, the king says, okay, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. Now, part of you wants to say, that may not be a good idea. Right, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a radicalness to this. This is this radical side of what is unfolding here because the father knows fully well what's going to happen to his son. So the prophets have been sent into the world, prophet after prophet after prophet. They've been killed and stoned and beaten. And now he sent his son into the world. He knows exactly what's going to happen. We're experiencing radical grace where Christ is walking into, with his eyes fully open, the, bro the radical brokenness of this world. It's a real powerful, and what does it mean for us to be united to Christ as we walk into a sinful, broken world? This is not the gospel that we often hear about. The third one is the similar story, the wedding banquet. Uh, at this time, of course, it's done a theme as a cosmic love story. He announces amazing uh, wedding. 
He invites people to come, and they start making excuses. I'd love to come, but I have to work on my farm. I'd love to come, but I've got to other businesses to attend to. Luke's gospel gives even more. This is found in Matthew and Luke. More and more excuses. But the, their real intent is clear because they start actually seizing the servants who invited them and killing them. The same thing, killing the prophets. Now the banquet host uh, comes out and he decides to completely clear the deck. This is a, this is a radical, this is that replacement theme. So we've, we've looked at the the theme of delayed response, now this replacement theme, he is going to replace uh, all of these, those who have been invited. And he goes out to the highways and byways, and he invites out all kinds of people, tax collectors, prostitutes, uh, those who receive the good news, right? And they start filling his house. Now, this is where Matthew's gospel does something that Luke's gospel does not, because this part is not in the Lucan parallel. Matthew has a surprise ending here because uh, it, it is really a shock. Because here it is, the wedding hall is filled with all of these people, these ragtag people. He's going to get them all, call them in. So the, 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 uh, the king comes in and looks at all the guests. And then he sees a man who had no wedding garment. This is found only in Matthew's gospel. And he said to him, a friend, um, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And the guy's speechless. Now, you're expecting him to say, well, we're just so glad you're here. <laughs> you know, join all the other ragtag people. But no, he says, uh, bind him hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's, let's put a pause on that for a minute. We'll come back to that. But let's just, just don't miss the delayed response theme for the, on the other ones. There's some of you that you might say came into your calling, into your response to Christ a little late. You may have things in your life which are a little bit tumultuous in your background. Things where you're like, you know, boy, I really wish I had kind of gotten myself into this track five years earlier, ten years earlier. But may say, God loves the delayed response people. He loves it. He loves working people who may have had a little rough beginning, but come around and see the power of the kingdom. Your very life is in, in embodying the fact that you're saying yes to God, not just lip service, and everything is, all, everything is fine. I think it's wonderful how God, if we all took time to look at the, our lives and the trajectory of our lives, some of you, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you know, God writes straight with crooked lines. And so, so, yeah, that's been my story, right? And that's okay. That's a, it's a great theme here because those who thought they were insiders end up being outsiders, and those who thought they would never imagine being part of this kingdom work end up, you're in seminary. <laughs> Some of your friends from high school are like, you are where? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. That's the cast of response that, that we want to have. But we also have this whole, you know, outward obedience, outward show. And I do think this last, uh, these, these are all linked together. Unfortunately, they, they, they passed from 21 to 22, Matthew, the chapter headings. It was a mistake. They should have kept these into one block. But this third parable, which opens up chapter 22, which ends with this man without wedding clothes, is a really important 
thematic conclusion of this. Because we do see the power of the delayed response. We also recognize that God has the right to clear the tables of his church. He has the right to do that. There's no, he has no obligation to anybody to say, okay, because you grew up into this, and because you said this, because you, you're a seminary graduate. No, no, no. He can clear the table. And a lot of times we actually think uh, that because the church in the West is having difficulty and declining and all of this, that somehow or another that we're, you know, we just have got to get the message better. We have to figure out ways to make it more appealing. But in fact, it could be the actual judgment of God. It could be the judgment of God on our church. And we have to be willing to accept that. We have a lot of messaging that goes out that we come to Christ and he'll solve every problem. He's going to take away all of our sorrows. He'll turn all of our depression and anxiety into unremitting joy. It's just simply not true. It's just one of the things that we say but actually are not taught in the New Testament. So he's saying, if you really want to follow me, to follow me and to cross even to the point of rejection and humiliation and pain and suffering. And that's not easy for any of us. And yet God's saying, that's, my, that's what it means to be the people of God. And he may have to clear the decks, but he always raises up better hearers of his word, always, every generation. And we want to be a part of that. I think all of us want to be a part of that. But this third man um, in the banquet he doesn't tell the man, as you might expect, no worries, at least you came in to the banquet. Because after all, we have this long series of lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, to the two sons, the tenants, the wedding guests, he's, all of that. And yet this person is cast into utter darkness. I do think at times, we, and this is where Wesleyans, this is like our message to the world, and one of our great themes is we don't want to confuse sola gratia, grace alone, with some form of cheap grace. That, I think, is crucial to why God has raised up Wesleyans in the world. That's part of who we are, is remind the church that, in fact, we are called to a radical transformation. We believe in the radical embrace of God, of all people, but we also believe in the radical transformation. We have to get rid of these soiled clothes that we have and put on the garments of Christ. And there is no way to sidestep that. And I, I think no better words can be said on this point than the words of Dietrich Bronhofer in his classic Cost of Discipleship. I want to quote him here where he says, defining and contrasting cheap grace with costly grace. And think about how you know, powerful and prescient these words are for us today. Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without transformation. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. And then he says, and get this, this is the point, and this is what we find in this parable with the, the lavish, amazing father who gives such grace to the son who said no, the amazing love of the father who actually allowed uh, the, those who came into the vineyard, who worked and labored, he sent his, even his son, 
and those who were willing to bring in all these people that are marginal into his kingdom and give the feast to them. Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field for the sake of what a man or woman will sell all that they have to purchase that. Costly great is the pearl of great price that the merchant will sell all that they have to purchase that pearl. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ whose sake a man or woman will pluck out their eye if it causes them to stumble. It's the cost of Jesus Christ at which a disciple will leave his or her nets and follow him. That's that's what he's calling us to. And that's, I believe that, I know we live in a generation, I I speak for my generation as much as yours actually, but who has spent a lot of energy trying to make the gospel appealing and to lower the bar. But I do believe our our, our culture and our lost world is hungry for those who say, this is actually what it means to be transformed by the gospel. It's, it's, it's actually not going to cost you just a little bit. It's going to cost you everything. I think there's a power to that. And I think God is determined to, if necessary, clear the table, to, to have the people of God be the people of God. And we are seeing that emerge all over the world. To me, this is what servanthood is about, where the free gift of grace meets the cost of discipleship. And that is a mysterious sector which we must embody as the people of God and, of course, what Christ himself has done in his life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, we may have been delayed in our response but you've been so gracious to us to count us as servants of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you're Lord of your church. And Lord, you, you can replace us with other better hearers, and we, but we don't want to be replaced. We want to be a part of those who are responding with our hearts and lives, not just with our lips. And we pray that we might embody this place where the power of God's grace meets the true cost of discipleship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.